0: invite you to join me in John chapter 6. We are beginning a, a new sermon series today. John, the Gospel of John. The series is called Jesus Is. And the question we're seeking to answer with this, uh, with this series is, who, who is Jesus? Um, you know, there's several places in the scripture where Jesus says, who, who do men say that I am? And, uh, and then there are several places like we're going to look at today where we're actually looking at, who does Jesus say that he is? So as you've heard, and I'm sure through social media and through the news network, our world is gripped by fear, and everyone's seeking answers, trying to do what we can to protect ourselves, to ensure our safety. Well, this virus seems to have brought to the surface a reality that we really all know, but we somehow live ignoring it. Here's the reality. People die. All right, isn't that crazy? That people die. Human life is fragile. I don't know if you know that, but it is fragile. Somehow we live day to day in the fog of God's common grace and uh, we lose sight that people actually die. It seems so distant, so far away, so, uh, you know, maybe it's not ever going to happen in our own minds. But when it does come, we're all shocked by it, right? It's, It's like it's so unexpected that people die. Um, just a week and a half ago, I was at the gym. I was working out in the morning, and uh, a guy next to me collapsed onto the floor. Uh, just fell over off the machine. He was on. 62-year-old man in relatively good health. He's frequent at the gym, very, very frequent there, uh, committed to regular exercise. But you know what? That day, a week and a half ago, was his last 2 minutes before he died, he and I were laughing. We were talking about the machine he was about to get on. He got on the machine. He got a couple of minutes into his workout. I put my earbuds in, went to went to work myself, and then within 2 minutes of a conversation, he was gone. There's no way. He woke up that Wednesday morning and thought, "You know, since today'll be my last day, I think I'll spend my last few moments at the gym." There's no way. What's my point? My point is that life is fragile. Death is sure. And we're not in control. Amen. Now, that doesn't sound like good news. But it is when you talk about who is in control. That's right. And that's what we're talking about today in the Gospel of John. But one, one gift that this whole coronavirus thing has given to us is to sober us up. It's sobered us up to how little control we have over our lives and our death. Right? I mean, everything we're doing in the world right now is a scramble to try to regain control. I hope we see that. Like we're shutting down schools, we're we're shutting down large gatherings, and, and crazy things are going on. And it's a good thing. People are making major moves to try to ensure health, ultimately to save lives. And that's a very good thing. But isn't it amazing that such massive change is happening because of a virus? I mean, think about it. We're talking about a microscopic enemy that none of us can even see. And it's radically changing our world. Some people have become seriously ill. Some, many have died around the world. For those of us less affected, our schedules have been forced to change. Schools are closing. Businesses are having to adapt. The stock market was like the Georgia Cyclone for a while. And uh, major sports industries. This has been really shocking to me, that major sports like NBA and others have just said, go home. Like they're literally leaving millions of dollars on the table, right? So a couple of good things come out of that. One, we've realized that life is fragile. And two, we've realized that life is more important than money. At least to some degree. But I hope we don't just shrug our shoulders and go, Well, we need to let this sink in. God wants to use this to shake us. So here's a question for you that I hope you wrestle with all week. How does the gospel answer the questions that everyone is asking? Oh, guys, we need to get fluent in this kind of thinking. We need to get good at thinking this way. I had a friend of mine that texted me this week and he said, Romans 8 28, is it true about the coronavirus? Romans eight twenty eight. you know the verse? All things work together for good to those who love God and call. Are you, are you familiar with the verse? He texted me. He said, is Romans 8, 28 true about the coronavirus? So I responded and said, quote, all things. <laughs> yes. And he said, tell me how. And I thought, this is a great question. Are we prepared to answer it? We've got to begin becoming more fluent with gospel infusion, gospel answers into the world's questions. And the world around us is going, what is going on? And we can say, let me tell you. So this morning, as we dig into the gospel of John, I hope to put some tools in your tool belt Some answers in your mind for how, what is God doing in the midst of all of this? And it just comes up that we are looking at a text where Jesus presents himself as the answer to all of these questions. You know, Peter says that we need to be ready in season and out of season to give a what? An answer for what? The hope that we have within us, right? Peter says we need to be ready to give an answer. What's he implying there? He's implying that the hope we have should help us to lead a life to make people ask questions, right? That people should be able to look at your life that's so full of hope in the midst of all this terrible tragedy. And they should be able to say, how are you so at peace how do you have so much joy and happiness and hope? How are you not going crazy buying toilet paper or whatever? You know, how is that not impacting you? And you get to say, well, here's my answer for the hope that I have. Peter says we need to be ready in season and out of season to give an answer. Well, the church, we and the church at large needs to be shaken. We need to be shaken and sobered up from our comfort-seeking consumerism. And brought to the place where we're ready to receive the kinds of messages that Jesus gives us, like he has for us today. So in John chapter 6, Jesus makes a claim about himself. And here's what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. Now by that, I think he means all that you think you need and all that you really need. Is Christ all that you think you need, and all that you really need is Christ, not Charmin or Purell, but Christ. Jesus did not come just to give you bread; he came to be bread for you. So our main idea today, this is at the top of your uh, sermon guide. The main idea today is this. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. Not just that he can give you what you want or what you need for life, but that he is the source of that life. That life is actually found in Jesus. Now we're going to unpack that because it's kind of up in the clouds. So we're going to unpack it in John chapter 6. I'd like for you to stand with me. We're just going to read a small portion now, and then we'll study through the, the whole passage as we go through the message today. John chapter 6, we'll find your, find your place in verse 48. This sort of summarizes the main idea of Jesus' message, and then we'll unpack it Using the whole section. Verse 48 Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am living, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus, we look to you today to be saved and to be satisfied. Lord, open our hearts to receive your word. Walk out of here confident that Jesus is life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. All right, so the background of this text is that uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 at the beginning of John 6. That's what happens. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with, uh, with like a, a value meal from Captain D's. A uh, little boy's lunch. He, he brings, the, brings his lunch, you know, just a, a couple of fish and, and some, some loaves of bread. And Jesus feeds the masses. Now, the, the point of that miracle is not just that Jesus has the power to provide He certainly does have the power of provision, right? No doubt. But the point of that miracle is actually pointing to this statement about his own identity. He didn't say, I am the one who gives you bread. No, he said, I am the bread of life. And so the point of the miracle of the 5,000 is not just to bring to the light that Jesus has the power to meet and provide for your needs by giving you food and the things that you need. It's not just His provision. It's that He is the provision. Well, after He feeds the 5,000, they have that feeding frenzy. Jesus and His disciples, well, actually just the disciples, jump in a boat and they go to cross the sea. As they get across the sea, there's a bad storm that comes. They're several miles out into the sea, and there's a a storm. They're all a little afraid. Well, Jesus didn't go with them. He stayed behind, and the people on shore saw that. They saw that the disciples left without Jesus. They thought that was unusual. Well, then Jesus comes walking on the water to his disciples, and they're scared. He says, don't be afraid. It's me. They say, well, get in the boat. We need you, and he gets in the boat, and immediately... The boat somehow is at shore. John doesn't give us details here. I'm like looking for the the footnotes for the details because it's incredible that somehow the the boat just immediately is at shore. That's a crazy miracle that we don't even have much detail about. Well, that that whole miracle um, provokes the crowd. They're amazed that Jesus didn't travel with the disciples. And yet when the crowd got to the other side of the sea, Jesus is there. And so they start questioning him like, how did you get here? And maybe they hoped to hear of some miraculous story of how he um, teleported over or or maybe he like Superman flew over the sea or something. And Jesus could have told them, no, guys, I just walked here on the water. (laughs) He could have literally said that because that's what happened. But as we pick up our text today, we see that he doesn't even answer their question. Do you know why he doesn't answer their question? Because he knew their hearts. They weren't really interested in him. Their motivation to seek him wasn't wasn't about who he is. It was about what he could do for them. And that's where we pick up the text. I'd like for you to look with me at John 6, verse 25. And let's just read. When, When the crowd found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's an important verse. So they said to him, Well, then, what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the first thing we want to acknowledge about who Jesus is, that's the, that's the question we're answering, is number one, Jesus is The true bread from heaven. Right there in the text, that's what Jesus says. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verses 32 and 33. When when Jesus says, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He doesn't mean that the manna that God gave in the wilderness back when Moses and the Israelites were wandering for 40 years, he doesn't mean that was false bread or fake bread or in some way um, not, not good bread. What he means is that bread was actually pointing to this bread. It's not that that was false. It's that this is ultimately I am ultimately the true bread. And here's what we need to do. We need to look back to the story Uh, In Exodus, when Moses and the Israelites are wandering, they've come out of slavery in Egypt and they're wandering for those 40 years and God provided for them by giving them bread every day. That's where we get our prayer, you know, give us this day our daily bread. It comes out of that understanding of God's daily provision of manna. Well, Jesus is referencing back to that manna and He's saying, even that bread was meant to point you to the true bread, me. It was pointing to a greater provision. God's daily goodness in providing bread for life back then was pointing to the better or truer bread that God sends us in Jesus. So Jesus is the true bread from heaven because he gives true life. Look down with me. We'll read this part of the text in a moment. But look down with me at John 6, verse 49, because he's going to pick up this same idea. In verse 49, he says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I want us to make a point here when Jesus says, I am the true bread what he's saying is all the other provisions, they're good and all, but they don't last. They don't last. And he made that point also when he says, don't work for food that perishes. Work for food unto eternal life. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the true bread. And if you eat of this bread, you'll live forever. And you may, you may say to me, okay, that, that sounds good and all, but how does, that, how does that relate to where we are right now? Because it does. And here's how it relates. If you have feasted on Jesus, the coronavirus has no power over you. None. Like Paul says in Philippians 1, he says, For to me, to live is Jesus Christ. And to die, oh, it's gain. It's gain. And he says that in light of this reality, that the promise of this true bread of Christ is that life and death here don't matter as much. When you die here, you're with the Lord if you're trusted in Christ. Amen? Amen. So, so church, let's don't be a people who worry. Let's don't be a people consumed by fear. Let's be a people who trust in the word of Jesus Christ when he says, I'm the true bread. If you eat of this bread, you live forever. Secondly, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. In John 6, 35, this is his promise. This is his statement. But let's read from John 6, 34 through 36. So after Jesus says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. By the way, when they said always, what they meant was every day. Keep giving us that bread every day. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I know you guys were just with me when you saw me take a little boy's lunch and feed a big crowd. And that's what you keep asking for. But what I'm telling you, Jesus said, is I am the bread of life. I didn't just come to give you bread. I came to be bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, Jesus says, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So Jesus makes a pretty bold claim here. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. Uh, On Wednesday night, we took a few minutes and talked about the Greek language of this sentence But just to simplify it for us today, he's saying ego eimi. When he says I am, that's the Greek. Ego eimi. Those words mean the same thing. Ego means I am. And eimi means I am. It's just two different ways of saying it. So in essence, what Jesus is saying here is I am that I am the bread of life. Now I don't know if that rings a bell for you, but it should. Because in Exodus 3.14, when Moses walked up on a bush that was burning and then a voice came out of the bush and the voice said take off your shoes boy this is holy ground and then the voice began to speak to Moses and say Moses I'm calling you to go back to Egypt and free my people from Egypt and Moses said well if I go whom shall I say has sent me and it's in Exodus 3.14 that God gave himself a new name he said you tell Pharaoh I am that I am has sent you. This is the name of God, Yahweh. It's, it speaks to His uncreated creatorness That nobody made Him. He always has been. He always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. Our God is good and He always has been. And He always will be. It's who He is. It's His character, His essence. And God said, you tell Him I am that I am has sent you. In this statement, Jesus is actually saying, literally, He's saying, I am that I am the bread of life. This is not an accident. And the people listening to Him knew exactly what He was saying because He's been making this claim. In John chapter 4, verse 26, the woman at the well, she says, we know that the Christ is coming and when He comes, He'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, the one who's talking to you I am. That was a claim to deity. In John 5 17 through 18, Jesus had had just healed a a man and uh, everybody was upset because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Well, then we find out that's not really why they're upset. In John 5, uh, Jesus said to them, My Father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. It wasn't just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his own father, what? Making himself equal with God. It's right there in the Bible, John 5, 18. Jesus is calling God his father, making himself equal with God. This is why they wanted to kill him ultimately why they did. In John 5, 39 through 47, Jesus actually says, you're putting your faith in Moses and what he's written in the Scriptures, but you don't realize that all that Moses wrote is about me. It's all pointing to me, is what Jesus talks about. He says in verse 39 of chapter 5, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. It is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He goes on to say, for if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. For he wrote about me. The point Jesus has been making all along, especially in John's gospel, is that he's not just any other man. He's the God man. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's God in flesh. The reason that's important is because Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He's not just a powerful healer. He's not just a great prophet or a great teacher. In fact, if he's not God in the flesh, he's a terrible teacher. Because he's standing here telling you he is God. If that claim is not true, he's not a good man. He's a liar or he's a lunatic. You know, C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian philosopher, said he used that argument, liar, lunatic or Lord. And here's what he says. He says Jesus is either a liar because he's making claims to be God that he knows are not true and he's trying to trying to garner a big following And we've seen people like that in our day. We've seen people that have claimed to be something they weren't. They got a big following and then they died and it sort of fizzled. We've seen that happen before. And C.S. Lewis said Jesus was either a liar because he's making some wild claims. Or he's a lunatic because he's making these wild claims but he actually believes it's true. And we've seen some people like that too. Who've made crazy claims about who they are and they really genuinely believe those things are true. And they're just crazy. They're crazy people. So C.S. Lewis says Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's telling the truth and he's the Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's God in flesh. Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? There were a lot of wild answers. And then finally Peter comes out and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Man didn't reveal that to you. But my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. That's a bold claim. I want to ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you just say He's a good teacher? Because I'm telling you, if He's just a good teacher, He's not a good teacher. He's, He's not. He's a liar. Is he Lord? Maybe even more significant is the question we're seeking to answer through this series. Not who do you say Jesus is, but who does Jesus say Jesus is? And right here, Jesus says, I am God, come in the flesh, as the bread of life, and he who eats this bread will live forever. Thirdly, Jesus is working the Father's will. Jesus is working the Father's will. When we read this next section, verses 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the Son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I have come down from heaven? I hope we see that even his original hearers heard this as an identity claim. They're wrestling with his identity. Wait, who does this guy think he is? We know his mom and dad. We know where he's from. How does he say he's from heaven? This is, who, who does he think he is? He thinks he, he's God in the flesh. He's not just thinking it. It's true. Keep going. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. That's a quote from Isaiah 54. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father. Except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever believes has eternal Life. There's a lot in this section and we won't be able to unpack it all. But I just want to make some statements for us. The Father gives people to the Son. Whoever comes to Jesus will not be cast out. Jesus came from heaven. Not to do His own will, but to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is... I want to give you the things Jesus gave us. A list of things. Here's the Father's will. The Father's will is that Jesus not lose any of those given to Him by the Father. The Father's will is that Jesus raise them up on the last day. Is that good news for you? It's good news for me. That on the last day, it's not the end for me. Right? Because of Jesus. And because He's working the Father's will. The Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes should have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. Now, with those promises being said, the people hearing him begin to grumble. They're grumbling. And the Bible says they grumble about him. You see, it all boils down to who is this Jesus? And do you grumble and reject who he is? Or do you look to him and believe? Because Jesus says, anyone who looks to the Son and believes will have eternal life. They grumbled, thinking, who does this guy think he is? And as, they wrestle, as they're wrestling with whether or not they believe it's possible for Jesus to be something special. I mean, he was a carpenter's boy, you know, from a small town. His mama, we know his mama, that's what they're saying. As they're wrestling with that, Jesus asserts another claim. And He says, Don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Jesus had such incredible confidence in His witness and in those who would believe and those who would reject. He didn't let this shake Him up. He wasn't concerned about it. He said, I I know you're rejecting me. It's because in in this moment the Father has not drawn you. That's okay. The point here is Is that Jesus is not going rogue. He's not doing his own thing. That's the point he's making in these 10 verses. Is that he is on a mission. He has come to be the true bread. He's working out his father's will. And ultimately the father's will is that Jesus die for those he will save. Jesus is working out the father's will. Fourthly, Jesus is the sacrifice for salvation. So the metaphor for bread is actually really powerful. Um, It's really practical as well. Jesus is the sacrifice for salvation. It's powerful. Bread, this idea of bread is powerful. It's also practical. Here's what I mean. To eat bread... To be nourished by bread actually requires that you eat it, right? Okay, let's just think really, really simplistically and practically. To to receive any kind of benefit, any kind of help, any kind of nourishment from bread requires that you put it in your mouth and chew it and swallow and consume the bread. It requires a personal, intimate experience, right? So I want you to think about what Jesus is teaching us when he says, I came to be the bread. Personal, intimate experience of consuming. You can't just look at it. You can't just admire him from a distance. You can't just let your buddy eat it and tell you how good it is. If you want to live, you must eat yourself. You, yourself, you must eat. True belief in Christ is very similar. I've had people tell me, "Yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, My granddaddy was a preacher." Okay, that's good. That's good. So I'm assuming because he was a preacher, you like heard the gospel and ate it yourself. Well, I mean, no, but like I went to church a lot, and uh, my granny she played the organ. It was good. And somehow we have this idea that being around Jesus or being with and near Jesus people is good enough. And what Jesus says is, no, if you want to live, eat, you eat. If you don't eat, you die is what he's saying. You must feast on Christ yourself. You can't. Someone else's experience with Jesus will not change your life. Only your experience with Jesus will change your life. Let's read what Jesus says at the end of this chapter or the end of this segment. John 6, 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Keep reading. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's actually a pretty good question, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm just thinking out loud, like, it's kind of gross. Just just being real. So Jesus is teaching them, using the metaphor that they're very familiar with. Just a day earlier, being fed by bread, right? Right? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's gotten more graphic, right? We thought it was gross. Now it's really gross. And then Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh. oh Here's a different word, feeds. Something you may find interesting is the distinction between, he, he's been saying eat the bread. Now he says feeds. And it's a whole different Greek word if you want to look at it. Not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay. Jesus promises if anyone eats this bread, namely Jesus, he will live forever. So to reiterate, you must have your own personal experience with Christ. If I sit here eating and Stephen sits here starving... He will die and I will live. Very practical, right? Very personal, very practical, and a very powerful point Jesus is making. If anyone eats, of, you must eat, but if you eat of this bread, me, you will live and not just live for a little while like the fathers did in the wilderness because they died. If you eat of this bread, you will live forever. Then he makes it clear. The bread that I give for the world, for the life of the world, is my life flesh he makes it really clear and so here's the point he's making and this is the point that's also very very practical this afternoon if you go eat a chicken sandwich who provided for your sandwich now maybe it's zaxby's or maybe it's chick-fil-a it won't be chick-fil-a on sunday but maybe it's Maybe it's a restaurant, but let's get really intimate. Who genuinely provided for your chicken sandwich? Yeah, chicken. A chicken. A chicken. I told the, the group on Wednesday night when I was a boy, my grandfather was, grew up in really rural Alabama, and he had chickens and that sort of thing. And I can remember uh, saying, Granddaddy, what's for, what's for dinner tonight? And he said, Chicken. And we walked out in the yard and grabbed one by the neck and slung it around. And that's what we ate for dinner. Uh, it, it brought to a reality to me as a child that in order for me to live, something had to die. And I want you to see the point Jesus is making here when he says, you must eat my flesh. What he's saying is, I must die. You must feast. Then you can Live. That's the message of this text. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, He's saying, I'm going to die so that you can live. It's going to be my flesh and my blood that's broken and poured out for you. But if you'll feast on me, you will live. We cannot get past this reality. Jesus says that the bread He will give for the life of the world is His flesh. He's indicated to us, He didn't just come to give us a lot of bread. He came to be the bread that we really need. He didn't come to meet temporary needs. Mainly. He does do that. But He didn't come to do that mainly. He came to die. To rescue your soul Forever. There's some questions in this text that we need to answer. They're, they're in the text. The people in the scripture ask these same questions. In verse 28, they say, What must we do? And Jesus says, The work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. You must fully believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing there is no other way to God. There is no other way to God than through Jesus Christ. What must you do? You must believe in the one that God has sent. And people say, that's a really narrow view. I mean, why is it just one way? Why is there a way at all? It's because God is gracious and loving and kind to give away. And the way he gave was his only son who came to die on your behalf. What must we do? We must believe in him who was sent. The second question is, who is this Jesus? Who does this guy think he is? That's what they said. We know his mama and his daddy. I mean, who, who is he? Here's the point. Jesus is not just a man. He's not the son of Joseph. Need I remind us? He was born of a virgin. Joseph wasn't really his daddy. He's the son of God. He has come from heaven, not from Nazareth. He came from heaven to save us. That's who Jesus is. And in this text, Jesus is the bread of life. Thirdly, how can this man save me? Well, he gave his life, literally his flesh and his blood to save any There's a word repeated through this text. Whoever, whoever, whoever. You ought to hear that as an invitation. Whoever would look and believe on the Son of God, Jesus promises you'll be saved and He will raise you up at the last day. How can this man save you? He died so you can live. Jesus is the bread of life. So we don't go to Jesus to get The stuff we think we want. Our next meal, better health, more money, a better house, nicer car. Instead, we go to Jesus because He is what we really want. He's not just the the means to some end. He is the end. We go to Jesus because He's the one we want. To illustrate that, as I'm finishing right here. Imagine heaven. All the things you've ever dreamed of, the streets of gold, mansions everywhere, beauty like you've never seen, right? Reunion with all your loved ones, the people that you've loved so much here that you miss now and you want to see. The reunion with all those loved ones. All the most incredible things that you enjoy now to a greater degree, right? Heaven. Here's a question I want to ask you. Would you want to be there even if Jesus wasn't there? Would you want to be in an eternity filled with all the things you really love about here if Jesus wasn't in it? If that's the case, then maybe you see Jesus as useful, but not glorious. What I want to tell us is that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he he didn't come to us just to be used. He came to us to be the one who satisfies the one who we long to be with. Jesus talks about himself in terms of a husband, a husband that doesn't want to just be used. He wants to be loved. So here's the invitation for us this morning. Have you looked to Jesus to save you? Have you looked to Jesus alone to rescue you? Have you come to Him? Have you believed in Him? Have you feasted on Jesus? Have you been saved by Jesus? And are you satisfied in Jesus? If so, praise God today, right? For the good, glorious gift of the true bread of life. Praise God for Jesus. Don't fear the things that may take your life today because you feasted on true bread and you will live forever. So be satisfied in Him. But if not, if you've not truly, personally experienced the love of Jesus Christ in a personal, intimate way where you've literally feasted on the goodness of Christ, don't wait. It's no wonder the fears of this world Stir up so much anxiety and worry in you. Because death is real. Death is sure. But Christ is in control. And this morning, He's come to be bread for you. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. You can be forgiven because He died in your place. You can be hopeful because He raised from the dead for you. You can be satisfied because there's nothing better in life than Jesus Christ.